0: Amazon ReMars is a new global AI event on machine learning, automation, robotics and space. ReMars is inspired by the exclusive Mars conference. It will combine the latest forward-looking science with practical applications. Speakers include Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos, Landing AI founder and CEO Andrew Ng and more. Remars will take place June the 4th to the 7th in Las Vegas. Register today and get $100 off the ticket price. Go to remars.amazon.com and register using the promo code data science. That's r e m a r s.amazon.com promo code data science. This is Data Science at Home the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. Here's your host, Francesco Garaleta. Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning easy for everyone. In the last episode, I discussed about some limitations of current deep learning architectures, for example, vulnerability to adversarial attacks, lack of interpretability, and the need of a large amount of training data. We also have briefly mentioned some of the methods to tackle these challenges, like meta-learning techniques, the generative query network, and the graph network. So, in this episode, as promised, I will focus my attention on the graph network approach that basically encompasses deep learning systems that have an innate bias towards representing things as objects and relationships. Now, before we continue, let me have a quick flashback on the topic. So since the beginning of AI in the 50s and until the 80s, symbolic AI approaches have dominated the field and were extensively used to help people in several domains. For example, doctors in making diagnosis based on uh, patient symptoms or support banks in managing loans applications or monitor critical assets in industrial plants and so on and so forth. Pretty much the same what you know people are doing today with AI, just with different approaches. Now, these approaches, also known as expert systems, were in fact using mathematical symbols to represent objects and their relationships, in order to depict the extensive knowledge basis that uh, has been built by humans. The opposite of the symbolic AI paradigm is called connectionism which is behind modern machine learning approaches, including deep neural networks. So, in fact, with connectionism, knowledge is built directly from the data instead of being hard-coded with rules or symbols. And since the 80s, connectionist AI systems have turned out to be much, much better than symbolic AI, at least dealing with noise uh, and uh, ambiguous inputs, processing large data sets, or handling unstructured data like image, text, speech, and so on. So, one of the typical questions that researchers have asked themselves has been why not combining both symbolic AI and deep learning, which is pretty much data-based, instead of choosing one method exclusively. Now, it comes without saying that, as humans, we acquire new skills by interacting with the world and interpreting the collected data in terms of our existing structured representations made of entities made of interactions among entities, and also the rules that compose all of them. If needed, we adjust the structure itself to better fit past and current knowledge. You know, this is a never-ending process in which things keep happening and keep improving. Now let's explain these concepts. An entity is an element with attributes. For example, a physical object with a certain size or a certain mass, and so on. A relation is a property between entities. For example, size as, heavier than, distance from, and so if you have two entities, the distance between these two entities is in fact a relation. And then we have rules. A rule is a function that maps entities and relations to other entities and relations. For example, uh, is entity X large or is entity X heavier than entity Y? Now, nature provided us with a so-called relational inductive bias, that is a mechanism that allows us to develop an intelligent behavior by reasoning about entities and relations. In general, an inductive bias allows a learning algorithm to prioritize one solution over another, because you might have an infinite amount of solutions. In fact, you can have a million possible ways to solve the same problem. And so we need a way to prioritize on the solution that indeed is superior to all the others. And we want to do this independently of the observed data. When searching a space of solutions during the learning process, this is basically what we want to achieve. Now, some examples of inductive bias in machine learning are, for example, the choice and parameterization of the prior distribution if you're dealing with Bayesian uh, statistics, for example, or the regularization term added to avoid overfitting. Think about the dropout in, uh, in deep neural networks. And the third example of inductive bias could be the assumption of a linear relationship between predictors and response corrupted by additive Gaussian noise in case of the ordinary least-square algorithm. So these are all examples of inductive biases, which is what we believe the objective, the goal, the problem might look like. Now a relational inductive bias refers to inductive biases that impose constraints on relationships and interactions among entities in the learning process. For example, either markov models constrain latent states to be conditionally independent of others given the state at the previous time step. You know, we call it the Markov blanket, which means everything is depending on just the last observation, just the last step. And observations will be conditionally independent given the latent state at the current time step. This is, of course, a simplification that allows us to treat very complex problems under the hidden Markov model framework, but it works most of the time. Deep learning systems, as well, are endowed with implicit relational inductive bias. The fact that a deep neural network is, for example, composed of many layers, stacked on top of each other, already provides a particular type of relational inductive bias, which is referred to as hierarchical processing. In addition to this, each layer also carries various forms of relational inductive bias. So let's think about the fully connected layer, the basic building block of the multi-layer perceptron, right? Where you have an input, a hidden state, and the output, the MLP. Now, if we forget dropout for a moment, the entities are the units in the network. The relations are all-to-all, which means that all units in one layer are connected to all units in the next layer. And the rules are specified by the weights and the biases, which is the the matrices that we are learning during the process of, you know, during backpropagation. Now, in this case, the implicit relational inductive bias is very weak because all input units can interact to determine any output unit's value independently across outputs. A stronger inductive bias is present in for example convolutional and recurrent layers in convolutional neural networks and recurrent neural networks respectively. Now the convolutional layer is implemented by and we all know this convolving an input vector or a tensor representing an image or sound or whatever with a kernel acting as feature detector adding a bias term and applying a pointwise nonlinearity. The entities here are still individual units associated with each pixel in the image, for example, but the relations are biased toward enforcing locality and translation invariance. So locality reflects the fact that the arguments to the relational rule are those entities in close proximity with one another, for example the kernel is local, and translational invariance means that the same local kernel function is reused multiple times across the input image. Now, these biases are very effective, but they are still biases. Usually pixel values are very similar within a local neighborhood and their distribution is mostly stationary across an image, meaning that the same feature detector, like a vertical edge detector or any blob, uh, can be in fact useful for both the upper left corner and the lower right corner of the image. In an analogous way, in a recurrent layer, the same weights are reused across different time steps. We did that for computational complexity, but in fact that also turns out to be quite interesting and quite realistic for uh, real use cases. Now, all these relational inductive biases are implicit, in the sense that they are determined by a fixed architecture, which is the topology of the network. The idea behind graph networks is to provide a building block which, instead of processing vectors or tensors, like in the case of fully connected or convolutional or recurrent layers, explicitly handles entities and relations by operating over directed graphs, where the entities are represented by the graph's nodes, relations by the edges, and system-level properties by global attributes. Now, this building block, which is referred to as the graph network block, takes a graph as input, performs some computations over the structure of the graph, over the topology of the graph, and returns another graph as output. So, what do we exactly mean by a graph? Well, this is easy. Graphs are defined as, very briefly, set of nodes connected by edges. Nodes and edges and the entire graph can have attributes, for example, properties that are associated with them and that can be encoded as a vector, a set, or even another graph if you want to. For example, a social network. Nodes can have properties like the age, gender of a person. The edges can reflect the number of times two people meet every month or the number of messages that they exchange in an afternoon, etc. So, graphs are suitable to describe objects and relations because the set of nodes in a graph do not have a natural ordering and because they allow for pairwise interactions between entities. Of course, when an edge exists between the two nodes. Examples of systems that can be naturally represented as graph are so many. I will just mention a few, like molecules, in which each atom is associated with a node and edges correspond to the bonds or prey-predator networks. Even the internet is a graph where two web pages are connected if there is a link from one to the other. And you can think of, you know, many other scenarios and uh, phenomena around you that can be represented as, as a graph. So, let's continue the discussion on the graph networks. A graph network block contains three update functions and three aggregation functions, which are invariant to any permutation of the input. The update functions compute new attribute values, and the aggregate functions each take a set as input and reduces it to a single element that represents the aggregated information. So, for example, suppose that we have a system of planets that are orbiting around the star, and we want to predict both the position and the velocity of each planet over time. In this case, the update functions would compute the forces between each pair of planets at each time instant, the updated position, velocity and kinetic energy of each planet and so on. The aggregate functions may sum all of the forces or potential energies acting on each planet and compute the total energy of the whole physical system, and so on. Typical aggregate functions are summation, averages, minimum, maximum, whatever. On the other hand, any method can be used to compute update functions. Obviously, when neural networks are used for this purpose, the graph network block is called the graph neural network block, but that doesn't change the concept behind this. For example, in case of vector attributes, an MLP, or a recurrent neural network, is often used while for tensors, such as image feature maps, a convolutional neural network may be more appropriate. Now, each block can be unshared, like in the different layers of a convolutional neural network, or MLP, or shared, where aggregate and update functions and their parameters are used in every layer analogous to an unrolled recurrent neural network. At this point, you can ask a legit question, which is, how do we define the input graph that will be processed by a graph network block. So for such a task, there are in fact two possibilities. Either the input explicitly specifies the relational structure, or the graph itself must be inferred or assumed. For example, a fully connected graph structure is hypothesized. Examples of data with more explicitly specified entities and relations include knowledge graphs, like the ones used in the expert systems that basically dominated the early times of AI, but also social networks, physical systems with known interactions and so on. Converting raw sensory data, images, and text into more structured representations like graphs and properly modifying graph structures during computation to reflect novelty, to reflect novel information is definitely an active area on research and I must say a very intriguing one. Of course there are a lot of open issues here. But still, graph networks seem a very promising approach to tackle the main shortcomings of deep learning methods. Each graph network block can be passed as input to another, similar to what happens with tensor-to-tensor interfaces of the standard deep learning architectures. For each graph network block within a broader architecture, the edge and node outputs typically correspond to lists of vectors or tensors, one per edge or node. And the global outputs correspond to a single vector or tensor. This allows a graph network's output to be passed to other deep learning building blocks such as MLPs, CNNs, recurrent neural networks, and so on. And in turn, this may result in more powerful tools that are able to learn with much less labeled data. More interpretable models can also be created because predictions may be explained by looking at the relations discovered by the graph blocks. And finally, methods that are more robust to adversarial attacks may also be designed, because a system that represents things as objects, as opposed to patterns of pixels, isn't going to be so easily fooled by an extraneous sticker in the corner of an image, like in the case of adversarial attacks. In fact, such an advanced system would learn that sometimes it is not impossible that an elephant may sit in the sofa. And so, with this example, I hope I made it clear how powerful graph networks can be for your next machine learning problem. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time. Ciao. This was Data Science at Home, the podcast that makes machine learning and artificial intelligence easy for everyone. If you like the show, don't forget to write a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Podbean. You can also find us on datascienceatome.com, where you can subscribe to our newsletter and get the latest updates. Thanks for listening.